Turning to scripture today, we're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I invite you to find that uh, in your Bible or on your Bible app. We are in a sermon series on Malachi, the second week of that series, uh, and we are uh, talking about the fact that God restores. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. This is the word of the Lord. I want to situate ourselves in the text, at least some, somewhat in the mindset of what might be going on here. And none of this is by way of excuse, but just so we kind of understand the world. And I'll just start with a simple anecdote from my own life. And you can probably find examples from your own life quite easily of this. When I was a kid, uh, we would take trips occasionally down to Lindsburg, Kansas. Uh, and just north of Lindsburg is the little castle called Coronado Heights on the hill. Now, as a kid, um, and when I remember first going there, when I first noticed it, He-Man was on, so it looked like Castle Grayskull to me. It was this huge, whopping castle there on the hill. And as I've grown up, I've gone back since I've, I've become an adult, uh, if I am that now, and at least whatever age I am, I've gone back and seen it. And it looks a lot smaller. It's not this big, giant hill. It's a pretty small hill that you can get up quick, pretty quickly in your car. Uh, it doesn't take, you know, a ton of switchbacks. You're up there in no time. And it's probably a building that could fit in this room when you get down to it. This limestone castle-looking thing with a little tower. It's fun. It's cool to see. But it's not that big. It seemed much bigger as a kid. And we probably all have moments like that where something we saw when we were younger or experienced when we were younger seemed bigger than it was, and now it's not. Or it could be the opposite. It didn't seem as significant until later in life. We have all kinds of things like that. I, I want to I just put that there because the people had been in exile and they're returning to the land and there are certain things that might seem like that. They weren't as important when they left or they seemed bigger or whatever it is. They seemed out of proportion to what they are now as they return to the land in many cases. They'd been exiled for at least 50. It's 70 is about the, the extent of the exile that we discover in Scripture and they're probably hitting that point. 
as we're reading Malachi. And they need to learn how to live in the land again and be faithful to God at the temple again. In some cases, this is for the first time for some of these people. They've just heard this by way of story. But what we see is that even with all the instructions they get, even with the restoration of being put back in the land, they're kind of selfish and greedy. That really is going to consume our thoughts from this moment on. They're greedy and self-centered in what they do. And we could talk about greed uh, as an overt thing that we've, we've all experienced that when somebody who's truly greedy is greedy and you can just see it. But I want to suggest that greed can be a bit more subtle. In fact, sometimes people can look faithful and generous while being quite self-centered. And in a sense, you see a little bit of both mixed in here. In the text, we got word of Levi in the, in the middle of our text today. And his name gets brought up a couple of times. Levi, one of the 12 tribes, or 12 tribes of Israel, the son of Jacob, one of his sons, is the priestly tribe, and they're being used in the text to talk about as an example of faithfulness of the priests. This is addressed to the priests of Israel. The Levites as a tribe and the priests themselves were responsible for being faithful to the rituals of the temple. Sacrificial purity that went on at the temple was their responsibility to make sure people knew how to do it and could do it right. What you also see, and you kind of hear hidden here a little bit, is that as, um, this is just the progression of how it went for the priests and Levites, as they were released from bondage in the Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, uh, they had the traveling temple, the tabernacle. There was a lot of people needed to facilitate the taking care of the tabernacle. When they built the actual temple, there were fewer people needed to take care of it. So some of the priests and Levites shifted over to teachers at that point. And here, that, that is a primary function that they have besides taking care of the temple. They're supposed to teach the people what faithfulness to God looks like. Covenant faithfulness is their goal. And while it generally works this way. Faith was not really by works in the Old Testament, although it looks like that. Walking with the Holy God is accomplished through the law because that's the prescription God gave, but it was always a temporary solution. The law and the sacrifice, those were life. Those were how you walked with a holy God, as close to holiness as a person could get. And when things went wrong, that's how you kind of got put back on the path. It didn't really provide salvation, but it was the second best that God had given. And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us, you know what, these outward, that, that, that uh, law and the atonement sacrifices were an outward cleansing until the time of the Messiah. They did something, and they did something that was necessary to keep people walking with God. And it was the job of the Levites and the priests to make sure people knew what to do and were allowed and able to do it at the temple. They were teachers of the truth. They were also gateways of being in right walk with God. But here we see that the priests aren't faithful in that task. They're, in fact, blocking the way, and they're being selfish in that. We could ask why, and we can look at how. Why aren't the priests uh, faithful like Levi? I can give a couple reasons, and they're just reasons. They're not excuses, and they certainly don't excuse them at all. But the first is kind of where we started. They're out of practice. The temple had been destroyed. Some of them were out of the land. Some of them are in the land. When that exile came, when they were conquered, 70 years almost before this time, some people remained in the land, but they didn't have a temple to use. The ones that were out of the land, 
wouldn't have been around the temple anyways, even if, if it had been built. They had no idea. So they're out of practice. Simple. Okay. They're also, there's probably a lack of what you might call practical knowledge on their part. They, since there was no temple, that's one thing. But if it's been a generation that's been removed from the temple worship, how many of those old priests are still living by the time they return to the land? Maybe some, not a lot. So that sort of institutional memory of what was supposed to happen would have been only theoretical for most of these people. And even if those priests were old, they would have been young when they left and not very experienced. So you've got an experience problem as well, lack of actual knowledge of doing this practically and the sacrifices at the temple. And then we shouldn't forget, and this is probably the most important thing for us to remember, they were exiled for their unfaithfulness. Generation upon generation, the priests and everybody within Judah, for the most part, were unfaithful. It doesn't mean there weren't faithful people. There were. But as a whole, the people were unfaithful. So even when they were at the temple, there was probably, and we know there was, corruption going on there at the time. So they weren't always doing it right anyways. So you have a mix of what few old priests exist probably saw a mix of right and wrong practice at the temple, had to discern that as young people, and now you've got a whole bunch of people coming back who only knew this theoretically and only learned it from these other people who saw that mix of things, and it was unhealthy when they left. That's why they were exiled. You put all that together and you've got some problems as they return to the land. That doesn't excuse bad behavior, but it does tell you it's an uphill battle that they're up against. And I think it's important to pause to consider and just, that was then, let's come to now just for a moment on this, this thought and pause to consider this. If we're God's people, here is the church, are we equipped to handle those who are coming back from exile? Are we equipped to help those who grew up in the church but left and maybe are now rusty in their faith and walk with Christ? Are we equipped to welcome them well? Are we equipped to welcome people who want to walk with Jesus, but have only experienced an unhealthy church relationship, or have been wounded, or don't know what's right? Are we in a position to welcome them? I think it's a really important point to consider as we consider what's going on here in the text. And if you want to know what animates me, by the way, in ministry, this is one of the things, thinking about this. Are we a hospitable place and a hospitable people? Going back to the, the priests, though, for a moment, they're in danger of not listening to God quite clearly. And the system that they have set up, even though they have the right instructions, they may not have had the right practice, and we can clearly see they don't. A lot of church system books are, are famous for quoting this quote from Edwards, Edwards Deming who says, your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. If they have an unhealthy system, they're going to get unhealthy results over and over unless they change something. The danger in their return now is that God has restored them to the land and is calling them back to restoration in relationship with Him. And they're about to fall into the problems of the past that led them to exile in the first place. So that's why the priests may have been unfaithful. It gives no excuses, but it tells us, okay, it's an uphill battle. How were they unfaithful? Well, if we go to chapter 1, verse 14, 
This is where we ended last week. It said, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The priests are greedy. That's what we discover in the text. The priests are greedy. They're self-serving. Ecclesiastes 5, I found this an interesting uh, corollary this week. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 10, tells us a little about greed. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The priests are greedy and self-serving and self-centered. And I can discern at least three ways within the text that you can see that. And I've got a bonus fourth that's part of the third way. The ways that that seem to come across in the text is obvious one, stuff, food particularly, but it's more than that. They wanted to keep the good stuff for themselves and give the junk to God. So they're still giving, they still look generous, they still look faithful, but they're greedily taking the good stuff for themselves. And philosopher Carl Clifton Soderstrom uh, is one who will credit for this thought, and I'm, I'm thankful that I, I read this. He says, greed is really just stealing from God, is all it is. That's all we're doing. We're saying, God, what you provide is not enough. And the promises you have for later are definitely not enough. I want what I want now, and I'm going to take it by any means necessary. And if we look at that in, in the sacrificial system, what they're doing and how they're doing it, kind of decoding that, since we don't do a sacrificial system, Jesus is the one true sacrifice, we don't need that. When they brought their sacrifice to the temple, some, it, the animal was alive when they brought it, it was killed at the, at the, at the temple. Some, sometimes it was burnt, depending on the sacrifice, or parts of it were. Blood was always drained. Sometimes the blood was splattered on the altar. The blood is the life of the animal, and it's, it's taken for, to redeem the life of the person bringing it. Some of it was eaten, though. It's, not, it's never just sitting there rotting. I think sometimes we, we might think that, that some of it's wasted. It's not. Somebody's going to eat it somewhere. Some of it goes to the Levites and the priests. Sometimes there are feasts that go on at the temple, three prescribed in the year, where they come and eat together part of what they brought for sacrifice. In any sense, it's costly to bring this if you're supposed to bring the best. And by keeping this, uh, a good example that we can see of, of misusing that, uh, the temple by the priests in the book of 1 Samuel, were Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They decide to keep the best portions for themselves and kind of get a little extra from people as they come in and kind of wrangle it from people uh, and, and work it in a few ways so that they'll get more and more and the people can sacrifice and give less and less and eat less and less as well. Here you can see they're just keeping the best stuff and giving the, the junk, as I said, to God, the animals that were subpar to God. And by keeping the stuff, they're communicating to God, first of all, it's mine, not yours, God which is not true. 
And secondly, they're communicating, I don't trust God. I don't trust that you'll provide what's best for me, God. Whatever you offer, whether it's relationship, peace, freedom from sin, whatever, the stuff I have now is more satisfying than anything else you could offer me. And that's how greed works. That's what happens when we get self-focused and self-centered. It reminds me very much of when I was growing up, we all pretty much always had two dogs in the house, and you'd give them both a bone, and they'd spend the first like 15 minutes of the time with the bone trying to get the other dog's bone. Right? And, and they don't even care about their own. They're, they're just slowly pacing around the edge of the room trying to get the other dog's bone. We had one dog that was good at getting them both. But most of the time, it was just a switch from one soggy bone to the other dog's soggy bone. Dogs are gross, hilarious, but gross. But there's no contentment there. They're not content with what they have. What they want is always before them, and it's always elusive when you're greedy and self-centered. Second way that we can see that the, uh, the priests are self-centered and greedy is not simply with stuff, but it's with their time, too, and their ability to listen. Uh, Malachi 2, verse 2, and we only need the first couple words. If you do not listen, they're not listening. They have no interest in listening, apparently. If you do not listen, God sends his messenger because they're not listening. Malachi means messenger. He sends a literal messenger to them. And they struggle even then. They had covenant history. They had all that God had done in their lives. We can read through that all throughout the Old Testament. They had the prophets that had come before and said, turn or else, turn or else, turn or else. They had experienced exile by this point, for goodness sakes. Some of them way longer than others. And they still weren't listening. And at a certain point, that's not an inability to hear. That's a choice to not listen. There are so many things around us, both then and now, that work at making sure we don't hear the voice of God in our lives. There are certainly active forces out there that do that. But by and large, I would suggest that for most of us, it's the things that passively work on us that we don't even notice and really aren't intentionally trying to do this that rob us of the ability to hear God's voice in our day-to-day -day lives. I get in, in, invited somewhat regularly to interfaith dialogues in town. And I've, I've talked to people other faiths and leaders of other faiths before, and I'm perfectly fine with that. I'll have coffee with anybody. But these particular uh, dialogues, I have no interest in going to. Because all they're doing at these is talking about all of our different traditions and all of our truth claims, although they don't say it that way, and how they're all equal. But they're not all equal. They're, they're, all the worldviews and truth claims and theological uh, claims that we're making are all actually competing for the truth against one another. They're saying one's true and one's not. And, and I'm not interested in going to a group where all we're going to do is speak falsity like that, as if they're all the same truth. And I think that's how, passively, we get God's voice blocked out 
in our world as well, that we encounter all kinds of things and pressures on us that are doing the exact same thing, saying your worldview is great, but my worldview is great, and they're both equally valid, and that's wonderful, and they're both true, which couldn't possibly be true in most cases. But as we start to believe that, we start to be able to, to be desensitized to hearing God's voice speaking through that. We actually start to focus on what we want more rather than what God wants. We're sensitized to hear ourselves and our own inklings much more than God's voice. Are your ears open to God's voice today? Can you discern when he speaks and are you able to react appropriately when he calls? Do you take time to sit in silence with God ever? And I'm using silence in quotes because I recognize that for some people, it's loud in life and always loud everywhere you go. But it's entirely possible. I've done it, know many who do it, who can be mentally, they can quiet down to listen to God even in loud places. Do you ever allow your brain to stop and your body to stop to listen intentionally to God's voice? Do you read scripture, God's word and his revelation to us with openness to what he might say or do you just go to the things that are familiar that won't challenge you? We don't want to be in the business of conditioning ourselves not to hear God's voice either. We need to practice that actively to be able to hear. The priests are self-centered and greedy. They're robbing God of stuff. They're robbing God of time. They're not listening. So their own time, not God's. And the third thing, I'll put them together, is truth and glory. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. It says, My covenant was with him, that's Levi, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Both truth and glory are what they're stealing as well. You know, what's the job of a priest? In, in this day and age, what's the job of a priest? It's to represent the people before God. They are functionally a gateway is what they are. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. That's how we do it within our world of the church, our part of the church. Right? I'm not a gateway to God for you. I'm, I'm here as a special role within the body of Christ to preach and teach and lead and care. Those are the things I'm supposed to do. You don't come to me and say, okay, now can you go to God on my behalf? If you follow Christ, you can do that on your own. Isn't that a brilliant thing? That's what Jesus has done. You don't need someone to go between. Jesus is that. He's done it for us. The priest goes and represents the people before God. You see, and in their greed, in their not uh, being faithful to the covenant and to the law in this case, the priests are robbing people of the potential to access God's presence, to walk in faithfulness with God. They're saying, it's wonderful for me, too bad for you. I've got all this stuff, but you're far from God. And they are too. They're not close, but they look faithful. Furthermore, God's name is not glorified in what they do, nor glorified in his people as they do it. And the priest who steals from God says, I get the glory and the thanks, not God. 
They're greedy in so many ways. And I want to point out as well, we have the ability to steal truth and glory from God as well. This goes along with drowning out the voice of God. Because again, we live in a culture that focuses on ourselves so much. So let me pick on selfies for a moment. Um, I'm not a fan. I jokingly take one a year with somebody special in my life, and that's it. And I'm not going to post it anywhere. You can post all you want. I'm not going to. But it's so bothersome to me, and here's why. Because we can't take a picture without ourselves anymore in it. I can't, I, parents can't just take a picture of their kids just with their kids there. They've got to turn and be in the picture with them. Not seeing what the kids are doing anymore. Putting themselves in with them. We can't take a landscape picture that's just the landscape anymore. In fact, if you looked at some of the last campaigns for office, particularly president, there were some stark and remarkable pictures of entire crowds of people with their back to the candidate they came to see as they took a picture so that it's known that they were there, not that they saw the candidate, but that they were there with the candidate. And it focuses our attention so much on ourselves. And what it starts to do as we live into a culture that does that is we start to value our opinion as way more important than it is. We've all, I can guarantee we've all been in situations where someone says, let me just give my two cents on this. But do you know how much they think their two cents is worth? Like 10 bucks. That's what they think. They think if you don't take this idea, it's just my two cents, you're making a giant mistake. That's an overvaluing of ideas, and we do this quite often. And the more we do that, the more we elevate ourselves. And when we lack any sense of humility, particularly before God, greed and selfishness are bound to follow. We don't want to feed into it. Last thing, we'll, we'll round it out with this. The last thing to say is Malachi 1.8, this is my favorite portion of this whole section that we've read last week and this week. It says, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. It's a powerful way to state it. Sometimes we can think that God is so distant that God wouldn't notice. But Malachi puts it in pretty remarkable terms. And so here's where it comes home. Talking about greed, selfishness, greed is stealing from God. Think about it in your own lives. Do you ever steal from God? And I think that's a really hard question. I wrote it down this week and I thought, that's a really hard question. Let me make it easier. Here's a rephrase. If Jesus were to look at your bank account, what comments would he make about the condition of your heart? If Jesus were to look at your calendar, what kind of comments would he make about the use of your time? If Jesus were to look at your media watching habits, big screen or small screen, what would he say about the condition of your heart? And if Jesus were to look at your social media habits, your swipes and comments, what comments would he make? 
think it's easy to simply say, well, I'm not greedy and self-centered, but then when we start to look at it, we can find a lot of ways that we move away and block out the voice of God, and whether intentionally or not, are not listening. But the last thing I want to say is this. I want to bring in a passage from 1 Peter, because it's very easy uh, for us to look at this and say, well, that's just the priests in the Old Testament. But as we already pointed out, guess what? We have access to God the Father directly, and we believe in the priesthood of all believers. So in, chap- in 1 Peter 2, you can see it in 4 and 5, and you could also read it in 9 if you wanted to. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you follow Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a priest in God's house. That is, you have direct access to God. That's what that means. And that's a remarkable thing, amen? We can go to God directly. But the other thing is, as priests, we're supposed to be people who then go into the world on behalf of God and invite others into his presence to become priests as well. So we can look at this and we can say, you know, being greedy with stuff, That's no good. That's not Christ-like. But, as I said at the beginning, greed is subtle. Sometimes you can look very faithful and generous and still be self-centered. Being greedy with Jesus Christ, as if he's just mine, is also not very Christ-like. If we are priests as well, we do not want to be stumbling blocks into the kingdom but people who invite others into God's presence. It's important that we are open to hearing God's voice and listening and humble before him so that we are priests who both go to him and take him to others. I want to take time. We're going to have a little more prayer in a moment, but I'm going to take time. I'm just going to let us have 30 seconds in silence so that we can consider what we've heard about that, how we need to be humble before God and take that before the Lord yourselves and ask for forgiveness where you need it or redirection, but let's go before the Lord in silence.